0: Hello, my name is Patricia martins Marcos, and you are listening to New Books in Gender Studies, a podcast with the New Books Network. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Rachel Louise Moran about her new book, Governing Bodies, American Politics and the Shaping of the Modern Physique, a book which was published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. So, Governing Bodies is a book which is centered on the body as a historical object and uses it to explore a wide range of problems of American modernity. Um, anyone interested in thinking about the body, how the body became a site of regulatory supervision as, a, as well as a visual marker and site of political aspirations, will find a lot to think about and think through uh, in this book. Um, I, I certainly did. But beyond... body itself, which can be a rather broad uh, concept uh, or problem for for any historian, the book actually historicizes something a little bit more specific, which is the idea of physique um, and of the modern American physique in particular. Um, So, Rachel, thank you very much for being here and for writing this book and welcome to the channel. Thanks. It's great to talk to you today. So, uh, Rachel, please just to begin with, uh, just it's, it would be interesting to know something a little bit about your background and how you came about working on this project.
1: Sure. Um, so, I've always been interested in a sort of pop history of food and dieting, but as a just as fun read um, in terms of pretty casual capacity. And when I got to grad school, um, I got my degree from Penn State in 2013. So, when I was in grad school, I was focusing on what I considered more serious issues of history. Um, poverty and welfare, and the history of public policy. And eventually, um, I came to see the distinctions that I was making between um, frivolous history and serious history as pretty ridiculous and realized that I could marry these two areas. So our obsession as a culture with weight and physique isn't just frivolous, Um, It actually tells us a lot about what's meaningful, a lot of material things about our culture. So um, I sort of dipped into this a little bit when I studied food-based welfare programs. And I wrote about the history of food stamps in the 1930s for my master's. uh, And that became an article in the Journal of American History. And then when it was time to really work on the dissertation, I realized that basically I could apply what I knew of policy history in my Training in policy history and state development to something that's traditionally been dismissed by people interested in policy and state development, um, the body and food and nutrition and um, gender politics around it.
0: Great. So, how was the the transition from um, writing the dissertation and developing this this object, this other object, and and then? transforming it into a book manuscript?
1: Well, I was really fortunate to um, work with the people I did at Penn Press. Um, Margot Canaday was my series editor, and she's just always been fantastic and helpful. Um, But basically, the dissertation was a little bit more focused on the early 20th century. So to make the book, I cut a chapter on home economics and body weight, which became a um, chapter in an edited volume. And I added two new chapters. So the one on hunger in the 60s and the one on the development of the WIC program in the 70s were both added after the dissertation. And honestly, I wish I could have even gone later, but I would have been, you know, never finished.
0: I think it's very interesting the way you use the body um, as sort of a a method and an analytical tool. Um, But another really important one thing I'd like you to discuss is sort of this distinction between the body, per se, as you were talking about a sort of a, a neglected object of analysis and public policy, et cetera, um, and the distinction between the body and physique, how you arrived at this actually much more concrete problem uh, that the advisory state, which is the other very important concept for the book, is. Um, which the advisory state was trying to to mold and transform. Um, so it, it's actually a twofold question. It's it's on this distinction of the body and physique, and also asking you to unpack a little bit what does the advisory state entail.
1: Sure. So first, for thinking about body and physique, a um, goal of the book is basically to think through the body as an instrument of policy, which is some of the advisory state work. Thinking about the ways that the body. Um, is used to um, affect other kinds of norms, norms about heterosexuality and so on. we'll talk about that in a second um, but also to think about the body as an object of public policy so that um, some policy goals are um, weight gain, weight loss, um, improve masculine physique and so on. So um, I think when I when I'm talking about physique, I'm thinking about, both the sort of subjective aesthetics of the body, what does it look like, and some of the more quantifiable ways that we talk about the body via body weight. And it could be a little bit messy to pull them all together, but both became really important metrics for measuring um, what citizenship and patriotism and mothering and then also as a standard for health. And they're just all deployed differently in different circumstances, but they're also all these ways in which bodily shaping, uh, were really critical to the state. So, um, the actual advisory state, which is like you said, a key intervention of the book is that most government projects designed to shape American bodies were part of this thing I dubbed the advisory state. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is that basically when we discuss state power, um, especially in, Um, In political history and then also in the literature on American political development, we often imagine it moving um, coercively. So the state could, of course, be directly coercive, like during World War II with men's bodies, but state power around the body was often coming um, in ways that were still coercive, but very subtle and very quiet And these included things like quantification and advertising and education and voluntary programming. So what I see basically is that throughout the 20th century, American citizens were compelled and encouraged to accept certain bodily norms and bodily practices like weighing children. um, And that they often complied, but didn't see themselves as consciously complying or as consciously joining a body project put on by the state. Uh, There were often intermediaries like teachers or television or doctors. Um, It was often a background project to other projects like welfare state projects. And because of all this, um, it was subtle. So there's a great literature on how Americans often don't see the state or realize its extent because of federalism and volunteerism. But looking at the very subtle ways in which the state was in people's intimate lives all the time, um, without them always being conscious of it, is this other key element of the story, the advisory state. And I guess I would add that that subtlety shouldn't be confused with thinking that weight and physique was minor. Um, the subtleness actually meant that it was pervasive.
0: Right. And I think um, all the chapters actually explore that and uh, lay that out quite beautifully. So, for example, in chapter one, you um, focus a lot on how these tables and weight measurements become silently ubiquitous in, in a way. Um And so this chapter in particular deals with children's bodies. And I I like there's a certain chronological logic uh, here. There's children's bodies. There's then boys becoming men in the following chapter. But in this one in particular, um, the children fall into the purview of the advisory state um, in the progressive era. And there's actually the role of mothers both inside and outside of the household. Uh, which engage in these body measurement projects. Um, and to give just one example, there's, of course, better baby contests, which might be what people have heard more about. So, one idea that I found extremely interesting about this chapter was the notion that because body projects of the progressive era placed such an onus onto women as good mothers, um, you mentioned in specific that focus on children's health was a much subtler way than eugenic emphasis on genetic inheritance uh, to pursue these, these projects of physique uh, and of shaping a better American physique. So could you unpack that idea a little bit more, especially within this progressive era context where food science and nutrition came to play a big role in normalizing body measurement?
1: Sure, um, so what happens in these years, really in the 19-teens and 20s, is that women, particularly mothers, were essentially asked to be voluntary arms of the state. Uh, they're encouraged to be really involved in nutrition and dietary planning. Uh, and The idea was that they would improve their children's health, but because of things like uh, better baby contests, because of the um, growth of the availability of the scale, because of the slow rise of um, of more pediatric health interventions, you start to see this sense that assessing your children's health would come through assessing body weight and height um, and essentially these quantifiable aspects of the body. So... Um, What happened is that there was this compelling women, um, that good motherhood meant this focus on nutrition. Women were in no way forced to participate. And that's what makes the advisory state interesting. And that although pamphlets and information on weighing often came directly from, um, the children's bureau. So from the state, it often wasn't perceived, um, as necessarily being a demand of the state. It was perceived as coming through um, these children's health events, coming through uh, physicians and therefore not feeling um, as aggressive a state project. Really introduced essentially the idea that body weight and height weight tables and nutrition tables were these scientific and objective objects, and they were the way to be a modern scientific mother,
0: right? And I, I thought that was a an in very interesting intervention. Was really the notion that it wasn't everything wasn't accomplished through the idea of inheritance of genetic inheritance. There was another form of shaping of the household and um, the molding of children into better future citizens through these uh, much more subtle uh,
1: projects. Um, so right. Well, I I want to mm-hmm. just I don't want to discount eugenics. No, I, I, I want to be clear not. that although my project does no, obviously not. <laughs> but um, but what's happening is a lot of these things overlap. So better baby contests can be both about nutrition and about eugenics, and their ideas of an ideal body were um, based in in whiteness. Um, Their ideas about the best nutrition to get there were based in ideas of Americanism. So they're all tied up together, but it's also true that a lot of these subtle everyday ways of getting there are important for understanding that not every moment was about consciously um, thinking about white supremacy. It was just embedded in these other practices of modernity.
0: Right. Right. Um, So, Moving to to the the next chapter and sort of to a new context uh, from um, the Great Depression, World War One, Great Depression. um, There's also a a leap in age uh, from children to making boys uh, and making boys become men. Um, And so this chapter hinges in particular on this institution, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and you deal with that with great detail. And you talk exactly about this mission of of transformation, Um, but I was particularly struck by something you said here uh, in this chapter, which I'd like you to unpack a little bit more, uh, sort of vis-a-vis the CCC's goals, which is making a model breadwinner by physically rehabilitating uh, the welfare client. So this notion of the model breadwinner, physicality, and the welfare state being all tied up.
1: Sure, it's a great question. So, um, male bodies, especially, uh, or usually in this case, white male bodies, are so often the object of government interest. Um, and that's just part of this larger project of both masculinity and heteronormativity being really important to the modern state. So, American mascul- masculinity. Um, is often kind of grounded in these ideas that a man should be independent and autonomous and self-reliant. And so those understandings have been a part of all kinds of modern state development. So it's embedded in policy about marriage and policy about the welfare state and policy about who is a quote unquote good immigrant. And So for a lot of the 20th century, the federal government or different agencies within it have found it important to be invested in at least the appearance of heteronormative families and heteronormative masculinity. And so that means that um, interventions into American manhood are a little bit messy because you don't want to undermine men's autonomy and independence by the state telling them what to do, but you also basically do want to tell them what to do. Um, so when it comes to something like the Civilian Conservation Corps, you have this interesting moment where it's very coercive at first, and it's coercive in the sense that they monitor and manage what the men who are there do for work, what they eat, when they sleep, how they exercise, and in some ways that, um, intense monitoring and intense, a not very advisory approach is possible because A, you conceptualize these early CCC men as boys. Like you pointed out, you talk about them more like children, so it's less a threat to their uh, masculinity to be fixed. Um, but then also, they are essentially welfare clients. Um, and we don't always talk about the Civilian Conservation Corps that way. It's very, it tends to be an agency. Or a program that's remembered very fondly and distanced from its reality as a welfare program. Um, But uh, body projects are much, much more advisory when they're dealing with uh, middle class Americans and much, much more coercive when they're dealing with um, lower income Americans, especially those who are welfare state clients. And so, because of all that, Um, you basically have these men who are welfare clients in seeming need of rehabilitation. Um, And that rehabilitation is because in the Great Depression, there's um, both literal physical weakness and hunger, but also a language of physical weakness around men. So you want men to be stronger um, physically, stronger morally, stronger in terms of independence. And the belief was not only that that would make men better off, but also that it would make them more invested in the breadwinner family. So there was a fear that all these men who were weak, who couldn't um, make a living through their labor, couldn't find a job, wouldn't want to get married, wouldn't want to have kids, um, might explore homosexuality, might do all of these, uh, might leave their family, all these fears. And so – by crafting these men as, you know, at first scrawny, naive boys who become these manly uh, tree soldiers, they call them. Well, then they become these men who will then be able to labor properly, quote unquote, who can then be breadwinners, who can then get married and have children and be reimagined as productive citizens.
0: Right I, I found the, the site of the of the family and of sort of uh, this reproduction of uh, heteronormative um, masculinity through through the family exactly through this model of the breadwinner very very generative um, and it's something you see you see elsewhere in in the literature I see it in my own work for a different kind of chronology but it's it was very interesting um, to see it. To see the CCC as this object where, whereby this transformation becomes possible. This entire, vaster project of uh, social engineering, in a way, becomes possible. So, m- moving from, from this Great Depression context into, into the war, into wartime project, um, here there's a different kind of advisory state project and a different kind of body project as well emerging. Um, in particular, through the selective service, so through the army, through the needs and the exigencies of, of uh, wartime, so the selective service um, and the application of a there's a, performs so to say uh, the application of a physical standard to an entire population, and of course there's the people who are selected and the people who are not selected, and that creates all kinds of problems and anxieties in masculinity as well. Um, But I'm interested in particular in the challenges you discussed, the masculine model of autonomy, which you already alluded to uh, a while ago, and self-determination, which includes the promotion of a certain heteronormative
1: model uh, of masculinity, exactly. Right. So World War II becomes a particularly interesting moment for the idea of the advisory state, essentially because it's not part of it. Um, It is not an advisory project. Um, when you have men involved in the selective service, these men are being, um, they are being weighed and measured and intimately monitored whether they want it or not. And so it's a bit different than the buy-in of the advisory state, but it's also really critical that the projects of World War II and the Selective Service were made possible by all these years of voluntary bodywork, all these years of people becoming accustomed to um, body weight measurements through um, Children's Bureau programs, becoming accustomed to a certain model of masculinity that was promulgated by the CCC and so on. So because of the extenuating circumstances of war, there's a few reasons that it's not considered um, as serious a challenge to men's self-determination, to men's masculinity, in part because it's, of course, for wartime purposes. So um, any sense of undermining men through a physical examination is then really quickly rehabilitated by the idea that they will go to war. Um, But also you have a lot of claims of medical objectivity undergirding the use of these tables. Um, it's one of these things that yet again puts another layer between um, the idea that you're directly monitoring or directly measuring somebody. You say, you know, we're not intervening in your body, we are using this table. And often the we was um, a local doctor doing the first, uh, the first physical assessment before they went on. So, uh, there's that other layer between the individual and the state. And what ends up happening is that, um, because of the values put on strength here, men were more emasculated by rejection than by, um, meeting the bodily standards. And, um, So, there's more emphasis. I talk at different points about men doing everything they can to make their bodies fit the mold. Um, Sometimes because they want to be, you know, we don't know all their motivations, whether they want to serve because of, you know, patriotic reasons, most likely, but also that they want to probably not be excluded. So, I talk about men um, being encouraged to sort of like fill their stomachs so that they weigh more at their next weigh-in and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Right. Um, and bananas, bananas and, water, and water. Yeah. That was uh, one of the recommendations. <laughs> so there's a lot of emphasis on that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I was uh, could to explore a little bit, the, the whole idea of, of um, also promoting a certain heteronormative uh, notion and the fears of uh, deviant
1: sexualities. Uh, one thing that happens at the end of World War II and then leading into the Cold War, is this real anxiety about softness, and this fear about softness. Meaning um, could mean anything from flabbiness, uh, but it also could encompass being underweight. It could encompass. Not meeting other physical standards. But this idea of softness became seen as um, a real danger to masculinity. And it was a danger that was tied to fears of men not being strong enough, not being independent enough, and essentially being too much like women. Um, And so when you get into the next chapter, and we start talking about the Cold War, Um, there's a lot of sort of uh, fear that men's physical weakness was also a sexual weakness. Uh, There was language that men were soft and soft on communism. And you see this in, say, Joseph McCarthy um, saying that any man who was against his crusade was a communist or a cocksucker? Um, there's this implication that being um, soft might make you queer in some problematic way.
0: You built the perfect transition to, to the to the chapter on the Cold War, um, and I did have a question about physical softness and susceptibility to communism, but we've covered that already. Um, but my other question was really around, this is also a chapter where the female body first emerges in, in this story. Uh, because until here, it's very much women play a role, but not their bodies. They play a role as mothers. Um, but here they, they begin to fall under the purview of the advisory state body projects as well. And so I, I just wanted to, to for you to to maybe elaborate a little bit on, why is that? Why at this point of U.S. history, the nineteen, um, the, the Cold War and then into the 1960s, why do women uh, emerge in this story only now?
1: Sure. Um, it's it's actually pretty interesting because when I began this project, I assumed I would be writing about women's bodies. I mean, it's a book about body weight in a lot of ways. And so much of the literature and so much popular understanding assumes that that's primarily about women. Um, you know, I have a dual PhD in women's studies. I assumed I'd be studying women. Um, but what I saw so much when I looked at sources was that a lot of the actual federal interest in the early 20th century was about male bodies. And that was because of reasons of uh, strong laboring bodies, reasons of who the implied or the assumed breadwinner was, and then also reasons of uh, needing physically prepared military. And so because of all this, um, there's certainly concern about women's reproductive bodies, but there's a lot less concern about um, their weight coming from a state perspective. But when you get to the 1960s, it changes a little bit more because there's just more more women in who are white middle class women, so who are the women most seen by the state in that way um, um and they are increasingly you see these women entering the remunerated workforce, so increasingly you see um these pink collar jobs you see women who are then visibly part of the labor force and That doesn't mean that they have to be physically strong in the way it had been imagined in the CCC days. But what it means is that concerns about how women and men were working well in the corporate work, increasingly corporate environment, was basically, are they able to be healthy enough to not miss a lot of work? Are they going to be good insurance risks? Are they going to be too weakened by all the sedentary work that they become in some way or another um, disabled? And so uh, there was language about women being at risk of stenographers spread if they uh you know if they were just sitting at desks all day. And so there's this anxiety about what the healthy body meant, and that becomes really enmeshed in discourses of physique and of weight, um, which is pretty standard. The way that health um, discourses about health just became um, made were made to seem much more objective once they were tied to body weight.
0: No, that was. Uh, I, I think that was um, the. the, the- there's some technologies that are very basic that uh, pervade, are pervasive throughout the story with tables and everything, just the, the growth of quantification, that impulse to quantify and to, to make a normative body seem objective in that way. I think those, those aspects are, are really interesting in, in uh, making the subtlety of the, uh, that you speak about in the advisory state succeed in a way. Uh, because it just makes it quotidian um, in many, in
1: many regards. Right. The accessibility of the bathroom scale, um, the prominence of the scale in the pediatrician's office, and then also just in general medical offices, the uh, use of scales by the CCC, and then the use of poundage in their promotional materials, All those things were just subtle, but uh, really solidified the idea of what the body should be like.
0: And that dialogue between the body and material culture, I think is very interesting and and generative too. And um, you've already alluded a little bit to to part of what I was interested in in the next chapter and the next question, which is um, the issue of visibility. You were talking about how women were visibly part of the labor force, but in the following chapter, which is on the emancipated body in the 1960s, dealing with that context, uh, you also center very much the uh, the visualization aspect uh, of those bodies. So here you identify more growing concerns with this kind of poor emancipated body, um, and this is the point of the story when race really emerges in a more explicit manner. It was touched upon previously, but it becomes central in this chapter. And so perhaps you can discuss the expectations of physical appearance that were placed onto Black bodies, um, especially how they ought to look like, and the assumptions that the welfare programs made about the rationality and the irrationality of Black citizens. Um And so, how does the black body become a symbol of poverty and sort of a visual instantiation of the irrationality of black citizens? Mm -hmm.
1: So, what we see is that really in the late 60s, um, issues of the civil rights movement and of the uh, racial politics of the period, as well as hunger politics, really collide and become this interesting moment. Um, when those sort of advisory state ideas about how you're going to manage the body are, um, put to different uses. So when you're emphasizing, um, things like quantification, you're often, um, you're often assuming that people can manage their own bodies if just given, all the tools, be they tables, be they scales, be they access to different foods and access to exercise. But what we see is that in the late 60s, people on both the political left and the political right ended up being wary of essentially allowing low-income Black Americans um, to have access to the ability to manage their own bodies. There was a sense that Uh, a long-held sense that really becomes clear in this moment, which is that uh, these low-income Black Americans are imagined to be irrational citizens through the particular lens being used um, by those in power and are imagined to therefore need much more directive help in how they uh, craft a proper body, that they're not allowed to be nudged into it they're gonna be forced into it. And the ways that that happens, like you're, you're saying, um, there's a lot of visual obsession. Um, the concern is less about specific poundage and more about what the aesthetics of the body are. And so um, I argue that, and you know, this is a little bit of a simplification right now, but the, I argue that a lot of the leftist discourse really emphasize the emaciated body. Um, the very underweight, bony, uh, really um, emotionally distressing, moving photographs that came out of that moment, Um, the politics of hunger kind of photographs. And they suggested, look at this, these people, um, you know, these poor uh, Mississippians, they need food. They need access to food immediately. And um that was true that they needed access. But also um the sort of way in which it was crafted was a way in which there wasn't an assumption um that people needed money. It was an assumption that they needed um food chosen for them, uh food that would be delivered to them um, in that way. And we also see at the same time people who oppose these programs and a lot of their discourse also focuses on the body, on the black body, the low income black body. But it focuses on the idea that they distrust narratives of emaciation um, because they anecdotally know fat black people. And so they talk about that a lot as evidence that there can't be hunger. Um, And I see that in politicians. I see that in letter writers. Um, So there's this this real back and forth about what the physique of the low-income Black body is um, and how that means that uh, low-income Black people should be able to sort of manage their own uh, food. And then, of course, uh, part of all this is that the average welfare client was white, um, but the discourse is very much about Black bodies and Black rationality.
0: Um, I thought it was, it was really interesting, this, this, this contrast, this sort of the idea of uh, hunger in an affluent nation, and it goes against uh, sort of the dominant narratives of the 60s and in the 70s, sort of moving on a little bit to the last chapter um of having the most powerful nation the, the most affluent nation but also a nation where hunger somehow still still exists and pervades um i thought that idea uh, of that conflict that people are are going through and coming to terms with how that is possible was really interesting um and well explored um so moving on to the to the 70s and something you've sort of you were Uh, already alluding to the notion of poor choices Um, and the idea that it's not uh, the absence of means or money, but the absence of good information or proper rationality that informs some of these um, poor choices made around food and nutrition. Um, So this last chapter, um, which focuses on the 70s, focuses as well on the Women, Infants, and uh, Children program, the WIC. And you offer a sort of I thought was interesting as a sort of different genealogy for the welfare queen narrative in a way. Um, and you are you are careful to to note that um, it's not the same as necessarily what for example killing the black body talks about with fetal crime bills. It's not necessarily the same thing or the to the same extent and consequences that is happening, but I do think that it's it's an interesting it that chapter Belongs in an interesting way to that dialogue. So perhaps it would be generative to explore the idea that this moment was, that this moment hinged on the notion of what you call crafting good mothers and shaming the bad ones. So how did this focus on the shaming of bad mothers and the crafting of good mothers uh, came to change the approach
1: of the advisory state? So, like in a couple instances uh, that I've talked about, there's just this different approach to the body um, when we're talking about welfare clients than there is to middle class clients. Um, and you can see that interestingly in this moment because in the 1970s, you have um, various attempts at legislation that would. um or not even just legislation, but just various kinds of um, congressional debate about sugar, about artificial sweeteners, about beef, all of these things designed to say maybe maybe middle-class Americans need to change how they eat. And that just doesn't go through. That's considered too coercive. But then these much more explicitly coercive programs when they're applied to low-income women are totally fine with everyone. And what's happening with WIC, so WIC is the Women, Infants, and Children program, like you said. And essentially, um, it was imagined as a different way of addressing the hunger problem by specifically focusing on those considered most blameless, um, being like children, fetuses and children under five. And the idea was that you could Um, help them avoid developmental issues. There's a lot of interest in child development at this time. You could help them avoid developmental issues if you um, provided good nutrition in those early years. And um, some of that was also based on the idea that these children were um, at risk from their mothers. So you pointed out the idea of good mothers and bad mothers And the fear um, in the way that WIC was implemented was always that um, mothers essentially couldn't be trusted to be good nutritional conduits, whether they were uh, physically, whether they were pregnant at the time and therefore um, fully responsible for the fetus's nutrition and often conceived of at that time as a risk to their child or whether the fear was just that they would make poor feeding decisions. Um, So as a result, maternal education, nutrition education, becomes a really big part of WIC. And then monitoring the weight of pregnant women in the WIC program and that kind of thing were also um, considered acceptable parts of how they organized the program because there was this assumption that – the low-income woman, especially if she was fat, must be lazy, must lack self-control, must lack discipline, um, especially, like you said, tied to ideas of the welfare state. If she was, um, you know, basically um, that she was an individual problem with her malnutrition, if that was the case, not that it was a social problem. And um <clears throat> So, the wIC program at different what distinguishes it from other programs in some ways is that it's very explicit about what uh foods you're allowed, and that those foods are typically um i mean there's a there's an element in which states determine some of it uh determine brands and specific um specific options, but essentially there's this idea that you can have milk and orange juice and eggs and beans. Um, but unlike even food stamps where you have this element of choice, um, there's very little choice in the WIC program. It's extremely prescriptive and it's prescriptive with a sense that you want to improve bodies um, improve in quotations, you want to improve bodies in specific ways, um, but that you do not trust women to do that work. It becomes an interesting contrast with the um, white, off, somewhat sometimes low income and sometimes not women addressed by the Children's Bureau back in the 20s. Um, is it here you're also addressing mothers in the name of improving child physique? but you're going to treat these mothers quite differently.
0: Rachel, thank you very much. I think I've taken a a lot of your time at this point, Um, but I was just wondering if there was something else we didn't get to discuss that you'd like to talk
1: about the book.
0: And what else are you working on at this moment?
1: I think just the last thing I would add is that this came about at a time, um, like I started this project in the Obama years at a time when there was all this concern about um, soda taxes and um, calorie counts on menus through the ACA. And um, a lot of the debate was essentially about if Americans, uh, if it was overreach, it was a nanny state for Americans to have their bodies monitored, to have recommendations, um, from the state or the first lady about what they should do with their body and body weight. And I think at the end, what I really conclude with my project is that on one hand, there have always been these kind of advisory interventions. It's not some new thing that was invented in the 2000s, but also that it's important. We understand that, um, dietary regulations, um, uh, body weight expectations have never been aimed evenly at all Americans. Um, And that the the sort of gentle nudges that we see throughout the 20th century do become more controlling. um, And when it comes to um, low income Americans, especially uh, mothers of color. In terms of what I'm working on now, um, I've actually sort of, moved a little bit from body to mind, and I'm currently writing a history of postpartum depression and the diagnosis of postpartum depression in uh, 20th and very early 21st century um, United States. Oh, wow,
0: that's, that's very interesting. I think the move from body to mind is often um, a good one and tends to happen. I mean, they, they complement each other very, very well and in, very, in many interesting ways. Um, So once again, thank you very much and uh, best
1: of luck with your new project. Thanks again.